You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 8th of February 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Indonesian radio listeners may shortly be hearing even more of that, whether they like it or not. My guests Marcus Hippi, Ed Stocker and Peter Firth will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Theresa May's latest attempt to excite Ireland about Brexit, the US Supreme Court's teetering towards a conservative majority and the liberal counterbalance stopping it, and Finland faces the vexed question of how to commemorate someone both brilliant and terrible. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 20. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Monocle's Marcus Hippie, Peter Firth, and joining us from our New York studio, Ed Stocker, our America's editor-at-large. Welcome all. Seven weeks from right now, according to the present schedule at least, the UK's membership of the EU will have slightly less than five hours to run. This means, of course, that the UK's government has seven weeks and just short of five hours to figure out what Brexit is actually going to look like, specifically as things stand, whether the UK leaves with a deal or without. As part of her still ongoing efforts in this respect, British Prime Minister is today visiting Ireland, a country certain to be detrimentally affected by Brexit, however it happens. Ireland's Taoiseach Leo Varadkar emphasised that this meeting would not be a negotiation, but an opportunity to, quote, share perspectives, unquote, much as one might with the neighbour who has burned both your houses down. Um, Peter... I'm actually, and I I put this to you, I find myself actually quite surprised by how restrained Ireland has been throughout this process, given the amount of flack they have also worn for being difficult and obdurate about the border. I'm surprised they have not absolutely lost their minds with blind fury. I know. All of the the discussions around it so far appear to be very, very affable, don't they? You'd largely kind of expect that Theresa May's just hopping over there this evening for some kind of um, get-together, a kind of a little jolly, but... There is a, I mean, there is a lot at stake here. There is an increasingly, I've kind of started to develop this theory that Brexit actually doesn't even exist. <laughs> that, that, that actually it's a kind of part of an Orwellian method of distraction, sort of de- designed to divert our attention from the horrors of uh, rampant neoliberalism or something or something like that. I thought Brexit but, was rampant neoliberalism. <laughs> perhaps it is. But but yeah, to yeah, to cut a long story short, I think I think it is extremely surprising the tenure of it. I think but there is plenty of time for it to become slightly more strained and for them to come to the end of the, the line in in this discussion, which is uh, you know, uh, everybody agrees that they're the you know the backstop is in place because there can't be a hard border, but the ways in which there can be anything else except for a hard border um, is continues to be a mystery. Alternative arrangements, Peter. There's going to be alternative arrangements. They tell us <laughs> they won't tell us what they are. They just tell them they're going to be alternative arrangements. No, genuinely, I am amazed that uh, Ireland has not issued an official statement 
at all to the effect of can you people not go one single century without screwing things up for us? How hard can that be? Um, Marcus, I, I did want to try and bring some international perspectives into this while we have an international-ish uh, forum here. I, I was visiting uh, your homeland of Finland quite recently for reasons which will become clear uh, in an upcoming issue of the magazine. Um, and the subject of Brexit did come up. And as I have found in recent trips also abroad for the magazine to France and Switzerland and Italy and others I've doubtless forgotten, um, everybody basically seems to think that Britain is having some sort of nervous breakdown. Well, isn't it? I find myself ask, answering these same questions. Of course, Why you, on you, earth you are, are you now, doing You that? are now British, Marcus. Exactly. So I'm you're so, part of the problem. You know, actually, interesting enough, I've got a few interview requests as well where they ask me to explain both sides, but I still find it quite hard to identify what's happening in Westminster regarding Brexit. It's, it's, it's incredible. And I think it's interesting that we talked about how Dublin has been so calm, but actually we do notice there's a bit more, I don't I wouldn't want to call it aggression, but there's a bit more temper definitely to be seen, you know, if you go a bit further out. So obviously we heard from the European Council President Donald Tusk, who said earlier this week that there's a special place in hell for those Brexiteers who were campaigning for it without an actual plan of how to turn Brexit into a success. And also another interesting opening was from uh, the Swedish Foreign Minister Margot Wallström, who was also a former European Commission Vice President. And I think she made a really good point. She was first of all saying that she can't forgive the UK for what this country and its politicians are doing. But I think a very important point she also made in that interview was that she thinks, she says that this all is because of bad political leadership in the UK since a very long time. And she was saying that when she was working in the European Commission, there was nobody, absolutely no one, of major politicians in the UK to actually trying to defend this country's EU membership. And I think it's it's always been very easy for British politicians to blame Brussels for whatever goes wrong in this country. And I think it's going to be very interesting if this country leaves the European Union to see who they're going to be blaming next. Uh, Ed Stocker in New York, is is the subject of Brexit seven weeks out one that is, is consuming the discourse in the bars and saloons of New York City and elsewhere in America, or, or is it not really cutting through? I mean, it is cutting through to a certain extent. Obviously, there's quite a lot to compete with if you take some of the rather inflammatory language regarding abortion, amongst other things, in the State of the Union address just a few days ago. But um, certainly it's being covered, um, perhaps not in quite, what you know, as you'd expect, not in exactly the same detail. I think John Burko, the Speaker of the House of Commons, has become something of an international star and his sort of video clips of him speaking in the House of Commons have certainly resonated and, you know, uh, with people here in the US, I think they find, uh, as, as someone was saying just the other day, they, they find sort of uh, the way uh, the British Parliament kind of engages and, and talks a lot more interesting at the very least than uh, the rather more staid chambers on the hill in Washington, D.C. Uh, but... Yeah, I mean, it boils down to things, like I said, the speaker or uh, there was a recent feature, in fact, in The New York Times about James O'Brien, uh, the radio host on LBC and his arguments that he likes to get in uh, with uh, people who want to leave. Um, so, so those sorts of things. But as I say, as you would expect, 
uh, here in the US, uh, that, that figure of uh, one Donald J. Trump does continue to sort of uh, dominate uh, politics here. OK, we will doubtless be talking about Brexit more than enough over the next seven weeks and indeed probably after that until the sun dies. But uh, while I have the three of you here, I want to just whip round the table uh, very, very quickly to ask you seven weeks from right now, what's going to be happening in just less than five hours? Is the UK leaving the EU or not? And if so, how? Peter, you first. I actually think that this is just something which is going to continue and, con- and continue. I mean, if you think about it, we had a referendum back in the 1970s to actually join the EU in the first place. Um, and then it was revisited because after a certain time a- amount of time elapses, suddenly it's, it's null and void. I think that we're just going to see more and more of this, more of it almost like a sort of sort of state of limbo, which will just continue. So, you, you, But you think there's going to be a delay then, basically? I think, there's go- I, think, I think it is just going to be a continuous delay, which is going to hurt the UK considerably. Marcus? I don't really know anymore. A few weeks ago, I had this positive feeling that we may see another referendum in this country, but it feels like it feels like that movement has been losing some of its momentum. I'm, I'm, I'm slightly worried that that these discussions are going to continue and continue and continue without any actual agreements and there's chance that we may accidentally see a hard Brexit this country leaving without a deal. But then again, maybe we could... Maybe we'll see the whole thing being delayed, but at the same time, we're hearing some voices from 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 the European Union as well that some countries don't actually want to see any of this being delayed unless there is actually potential for an actual agreement. And Ed, quickly, I think we will teeter uh, on the edge of the abyss of a hard Brexit, and there'll be a last ditch something or other, either an extension or an agreement on how we leave the European Union. But I think the sort of impasse or the the uncertainty is still likely to continue even after that. Okay, well, seven weeks from now, we can gather here again and reflect on how wrong we all were. But let's look now at the United States. Uh, Since President Donald Trump took office a little over two years ago, there has been nervousness on a number of fronts, but on the domestic front, at least nowhere more so than as regards the Supreme Court, via which Trump could continue to shape American life long after he flees into exile in Krasnoyarsk. Trump has appointed two conservative judges so far, but it has not, at least not yet, resulted in noteworthily conservative judges. Judgments presented with a test case on abortion rights, the court voted 5-4 against allowing the state of Louisiana to enforce restrictive new laws regulating abortion clinics. Um, Ed, first of all on this, I know we've talked about this before as regards Trump. You know, he's supposed to be the disruptive maverick and so on and so on and so on. But his two nominees to the Supreme Court, that is, of course, uh, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, have actually been pretty Republican Orthodox, haven't they? They're the kind of guys you can imagine being nominated by President Mitt Romney? Uh, Well, possibly. I mean, I think, you know, this case is a little bit more complex than that. I think it needs to be noted, and and I think it's super important, uh, specifically relating to Louisiana, is that this is simply a temporary stay. Uh, There's a a challenge to the law that's expected to be heard sometime uh, after October. So things could still go the other way. This is simply... Uh, uh, in a way, hitting pause on the implementation of this law uh, in order for more detailed arguments to be heard. And what is undeniably true, uh, despite uh, what you say, is that the the Supreme Court now has uh, a rather conservative leaning. It is majority conservative. So there's no reason why we may not see 
some some challenges and some changes coming about in the future. Uh, this is only the beginning. You know, Kavanaugh hasn't been in place. No one can forget that acrimonious hearing, but he hasn't been in place very long. So there's still plenty of time for certain things to to be challenged. And, you know, uh, there are plenty of liberals who fear that in some way, uh, Roe versus Wade, which of course was that landmark case that opened up abortion rights in the US in the 70s, will be challenged. Whether or not that's true, we don't know. And what's interesting about this specific Louisiana case is that Justice John Roberts, who is a conservative, uh, was the one who sort of sided with the liberal camp in this case, which is why that stay was 5-4 in, in, in favour of, of having that stay. Uh, there's a lot of speculation about whether uh, Justice uh, Roberts uh, will sort of, in a way, fill the void that was left by the former justice, Anthony Kennedy, who was the one who retired, who opened up Kavanaugh's uh, placement. Uh, whether he will assume a more moderate role and sort of, in a way, uh, sort of oscillate between the liberal and more conservative side, in a way, uh, kind of have an anchor role. We don't know if that's the case yet. Uh, in this recent one, he did sort of side with the liberals, but in the past, he hasn't. So it's, it, it, it could, in a way, come down to this one individual, but it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out in the future. Uh, Peter, do you think there is a possibility that... There's a certain there's going to be a certain pushback on the Supreme Court, possibly not even consciously against Trump's appointees that because as more conservative judges get appointed, then the more liberal or more centrist judges feel obliged to become more liberal. I mean, Ed quite rightly points out that this is a in some ways a, a, a startling decision by the Chief Justice um, and also Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who has become something of a popular culture hero beyond uh, the confines of the Supreme Court bench in the last couple of years especially. I think there's a really interesting thing psychologically that appears to happen when you have uh, a a figure like Brett Kavanaugh kind of inserted uh, into, into the Supreme Court in this way. I think that there is almost a sort of a pageantry of justice being done and the notion that basically if everybody in the in the room agrees with one another then justice isn't being done and that you are just obviously coming to the wrong decision if everybody nods their head and says yes i think there's there's also a question of um yeah the, i think the the notion of people just wanting to just yeah i think rebel against against those kinds of additions into this into the supreme court as well and you know as you're saying kind of with with trump as uh somebody that i think a, a lot of members of, of um of that institution are extremely kind of dissatisfied and uh, you know i think kind of fearful in a way of i think certainly there's like a, there's a, a redress kind of underway where where i think people are shifting toward being perhaps more liberal than they were before uh, Ed, what do you think of that? Is there an argument, do you think, that, again, whether it's conscious or not or instinctive or not, the, the, the judges already on the Supreme Court are shifting slightly liberal woods under the pressure of the, the conservative new arrivals? Um, I don't think that's I don't think that's true. I mean, I think just, you know, all these uh, I think it's really been on a bit of an individual basis. I think it's quite hard to make that assertion. I mean, Justice John Roberts has kind of gone both ways, so it would be hard to argue that he's necessarily shifting more liberally. It may be, having said all of that, as I said before, it may be that he sees 
it, it may be that he's deciding that he can have a slight anchor role. But I wouldn't say that the whole, the entirety of the court is shifting to a more central. I think quite the opposite. I think, you know, this is a, a conservative-dominated court. Um, I really think it would be hard to say uh, where it will go. Uh, it, it will be fascinating to see um, where this Louisiana case ends up. But we also do have a precedent in the fact that uh, a similar... Uh, law was introduced in Texas and then struck down by the Supreme Court. So there's a precedent, which means one would expect that it would feel the need to follow its previous ruling and and eventually strike down uh, this Louisiana ruling that would uh, restrict, in theory, according to its critics, uh, women's access to uh, abortion doctors. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Peter Firth, Mark Ossipi and Ed Stocker. Coming up next, the difficulty of mourning the flying fin. Russia is a large and unwieldy beast, but in recent decades it's been tamed by President Vladimir Putin, who's deftly tightened his grip on power. To find more about where Russia finds itself today, from its soft power to its economy, watch our animated nation survey, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. And you're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Mullister. With me are Marcus Hippie, Peter Firth and Ed Stocker. This week, Finland has been mourning the passing, aged 55, of one of its greatest sporting figures, Matti Nikkonen, arguably the greatest ski jumper of all time, winner of four Olympic gold medals and five World Championship gold medals, among many other honours. This means that Finland now faces the frequent dilemma of how to memorialise an immense but flawed figure. Nikkonen also embarked on a somewhat undignified post-ski jumping career as a pop singer and racked up a wretched rap sheet of violence, including against at least one of his five wives. He served two prison sentences. Um, Marcus, how has the discussion about Nikonen gone in Finland since he died? I mean, that's that right there, I guess, is the dichotomy. On the one hand, a, you know, a, a titanic sporting figure and an authentic national hero, and on the other hand, a clearly fairly dreadful human being. Well, first of all, his death has been the biggest news story in Finland, a domestic news story so far this year. Um, so much articles have been written about him, so many television shows, even live television shows on the day when he when he passed away, all focusing on, on his career and, and what he achieved in sports. Um, it's interesting that when he was alive, he wasn't that appreciated as a figure. We all remembered what he'd done. And by the way, when you were listing what he's done besides beating his wives, having been violent. And he he also sold his medals. He sold all of his medals to get money. And he also had a brief career as a strip dancer. But anyway, after that, all of a sudden, Finland woke up to him, his, his, his death, and so much articles were written about him. This... Our former president, Mauro Koivisto, passed away last year and, and the amount of articles written about him was nothing compared to what happened when Matti Nykänen passed away. And all of a sudden we all in Finland seem to appreciate him, remember him as one of our greatest heroes. And it has to be said that even though we all knew that he, he, he wasn't perfect, he was still ranked back in 2005, if I'm not all wrong, to be the 11th greatest Finn to have ever existed. So it seemed that his sports achievements somehow somehow just 
took everything over and no one really wanted to remember like the dark side of, of his personality and his, his character. So the discussion in Finland at the moment has been that he was great, we should remember him, and some politicians even suggested that he should get a state funeral. And when that suggestion arrived, he he would have been the first athlete ever to get a state funeral in Finland. When that happened, then all of a sudden Finland got quite divided in regards to how people felt about that. They thought that that is one step too far. And actually today we got the news from his family that they say that they don't want a state funeral, they just want to have a private funeral. But it's it's interesting that he is getting so much respect, so much appreciation, appreciation now that he's passed away than he actually did when he was still around. He was a bit of a walking joke back in the day. I've seen him so many times on television drunk. I've read so many. Basically, he supported himself by by singing some songs on stage and and getting money from tabloids by by inventing inventing stories. He, he was He was, it was he, he was a bit of a sad character towards the end, I have to say. Uh, Peter Firth, uh, your own country, i.e. this one, is, is, is hardly short itself of flawed characters that it, it has a certain amount of angst about how to memorialise. I think last week on Midori House we were talking about the proposal for a statue of Margaret Thatcher in her hometown of Grantham, which on the one hand seems like a perfectly reasonable thing to do. She was a you know Britain's longest-serving leader of the 20th century. Say whatever else you will about her, a transformative political figure etc. But there was talk of having to put the thing on a 10 meter high plinth uh, to forestall attempts to um, to vandalize it, basically. Maggie's column. Uh, well, indeed. So it would be. Uh, what do you think? Are, are there people? It's, it's that question of how do you weigh up uh, somebody's uh, positives versus their negatives? At, at, at what point do you decide that the negatives are insurmountable? I mean, this is the thing, isn't it? Because if for anybody to ever kind of be elevated to that level at the on the world stage, they are going to have rubbed some people up the wrong way on the way up. And I think with Margaret Thatcher's column in Grantham, I say pop it in Grantham. It's fine. It having driven through Grantham on the way up to Lincoln <laughs> once, I can safely say that I shan't be um, happening upon it. But yeah, I think it. We're, Everybody loves the notion of the of the flawed hero. I think in some in some ways, you know, if you look at, I mean, sport is is a, a great example of it in the fact that so long as somebody can kick, can kick a football around, we're, we'll quite happily overlook their many character flaws. Paul Gascoigne for an for just one example, um, but I think that there's always going to be a kind of a, a measuring up in terms of whether or not you should elevate somebody to the level that they you, they you cast them in bronze and put them somewhere where people are going to either adore or vilify them. Matti Nykänen in Finland does have a ski slope named after him already, so there hasn't been a massive discussion in regards to any any possible statues. But I think, I I don't know, I'm, I'm not super into sports, I have to say, but I'm like, when I've been following this discussion in Finland, whether he should get a state funeral, I've been like, he hasn't rescued any human lives, he hasn't come up with any vaccinations, any magical cures for diseases we need. He was just chumping wearing skis. <laughs> He was jumping considerable I mean, distances wearing skis, I know, skis, but it's still Marcus. always it's, it's, it's not. It, it's like, not an easy thing to do. I bet, facing but... great peril. <laughs> um, Ed, you're in the United States, of course, where the, the subject of statues and the propriety thereof uh, has been recently a fairly vexed issue. And, it, and the thing is, I was just going to ask uh, the question, do you just need to wait until these people have been safely dead long enough? But as we've learned in the United States, that doesn't stop them being controversial either. No, I mean, look, to be honest with you, I think there are certain cases where it's absolutely clear cut 
And I think when we're talking about Confederate statues to the generals, uh, then it's pretty obvious that those should not be there and they need to be taken down. Um, so I'm saying that that's a pretty black and white, clear cut case. I think obviously, you know, talking about politicians, that is tricky. Uh, they are divisive characters and they're always going to stoke a certain amount of controversy. Perhaps you just, in the case of Margaret Thatcher, have to be prepared to ride that or you stick away from from politicians altogether or, or statues altogether. Do we need to deify human beings at all? Maybe let's not do it. Let's do away with all statues. Well, on that rallying cry, uh, we move finally along to Indonesia, the musicians of which have spent much of this week up in arms against a proposed new bill which would outlaw, along with blasphemous and or pornographic content, what it calls negative foreign influences. This appears to be setting up official censorship of K-pop, the videos of which regularly scandalise pious Indonesians who, for some reason, simply cannot stop watching them. It might also make visiting Indonesia even more difficult for some foreign artists. Lady Gaga as we may remember, was forced to cancel a 2012 concert in Jakarta by the rage of seething Islamists. Um, Peter, laws of this sort or attempts, censorious attempts of this sort have the usual, often have the, um, the result of making the music more popular. I, I interviewed, I had the great privilege a few years ago to interview Alice Cooper um, and asked him if it was possible for him to quantify the effect on his career that the campaign by Mary Whitehouse to have his records banned by the BBC had. And he just beamed at me and said it was the greatest thing that ever happened to us. The record went to number one, we sold out Wembley and we sent her a big bunch of flowers. I mean, it's amazing. It's, it's like the Beatles' success, you know, in the in the Bible Belt, you know, that kind of thing. You know, the the prohibited music is always always the music that you want to listen to. I mean, in this case, I just think I think it, a, it represents a kind of a depressing, um, re- reductive kind of move in Indonesia after um, after Widodo's kind of reformist kind of ideas. A big that Metallica fan, Jocko Widodo, as well. Is he? He is indeed. No way. I'm not the, making that the up. The old that, stuff that, or the new stuff? I, I, I don't know. It, it, it all seems a bit of a din to me, um, <laughs> if I'm honest. But no, he is a big Metallica fan. Is he? Okay, so, I mean, are Metallica doing a tour? Do we know? Are they are they allowed? I, I'm not sure if that test case has come up. Um, Marcus, is there ever an excuse, do you think, for <clears> this <throat> kind of thing? France, for example, still uh, imposes upon listeners to its radio stations a 35% quota of French music. Do, th- is there anything like that in Finland? No, actually, Finland is an interesting case because nowadays the young Finnish people, I don't include myself amongst them anymore they want to listen to Finnish language music so it's kind of a weird experience to go there and like you don't actually hear that much songs being sung in in English anymore but I think it's interesting that when you look at this all this whole discussion reminds me of what was going on in December in Russia when we got newspaper reports that President Vladimir Putin was against rap music and then according to another article I was doing my research I just remember that he actually said that he changed his mind he didn't want to ban (laughs) rap music because well the concern was that rappers sang about violence and drugs and he didn't, Putin didn't like that idea. But he thought, then Putin thought that what he could do, what the government in Russia could do would be to lead and in an appropriate way direct rap and hip-hop music to the right direction. I can't imagine that going at all wrong. Um, We are coming towards the end of the show. I I did want to wind it up by giving you each of our panel the chance to pretend to be a, a, a crazed authoritarian despot for just a few minutes. And if you were empowered to ban 
can. And I will start with you, Ed, from the airwaves, from television, uh, from all public spaces, any kind of particular genre or artist. What, where would the hammer come down? Does Muzak count? Sort of that sort of wishy-washy uh, lift music. Yeah, anything you like. You're, you're, you're the crazed authoritarian despot. Ban what you like. I'm banning that. Okay, okay. So Ed is going to... King Ed, Emperor mm. Ed there, is going to silence lift music, Marcus? There's a reason why I had to leave Finland. I hate death and heavy metal, which is dominating the Finnish radio scene over there. And if I could choose one specific genre of that even in Finland, I want to ban. Every December, we see this awful, massively successful tour of metal, heavy metal musicians going on a Christmas tour. It's called... Heavy Christmas, and they perform Christmas songs <laughs> as heavy metal versions. It's it's so successful and it's so awful. Are you, are you sure about declaring that in public, Marcus? Because you know <laughs> so, so, some of those blokes are pretty big and they and they seem angry. I know, but they still can't get my passport away. Uh, oh, is, is that is that why you fled Finland? Was it the heavy metal Christmas carols? Pretty much, pretty much. And it's quite painful to go home nowadays when my brother is there. He's a massive metal head fan, so he forces us to watch his his DVDs from past years when these all these artists have been there. I feel like doing their best. I, I feel like we've learned a great deal there, Marcus. Uh, Peter, you you are empowered to banish you know a particular strata of popular song. What's it going to be? Now I've just I've just been thinking about this, and I think that I would banish absolutely every single form of music full stop okay except you're on a radio station you realize except, I, do, I do realize that except for popular northern rock band white snakes album come and get it you would ban literally all music apart from come and get it by white snake that's right okay that is niche you've got 10 seconds to explain yourself um well i'd probably i'd probably it's all down to Mickey Moody's um, <laughs> slide guitar playing. By far and away the best guitar player to come out of Bolton in the mid-1980s. Guys, I'm going to force a, you to watch a, some... A, a, a hotly contested Guys, field. I'm going to force you to watch some of heavy, heavy Christmas best-of DVDs after this programme. <laughs> Um, we haven't unfortunately queued up any White Snake to play us out, so I would encourage uh, all our listeners to, as soon as they're finished hearing me read out the closing credits, go and look up. Which album was it again, Peter? It was Come and Get It. Come and Get It by White Snake. Uh, please address all complaints afterwards to Peter Firth. His email address is in the front of the magazine. Uh, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Peter Firth, Ed Stocker, and Marcus Hippie, thanks for joining us. The show was produced by Augustin Machelari, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Rory Goodrick. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next. Probably not New White Snake, though. At 1900, it's the menu. There's more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200. Midori House is back on Monday at 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Have a great weekend. <laughs> <laughs>